we left off um, kind of leading into chapter 9 and got through chapter 8. You see, I'm moving at a faster pace than the pastor does on, on Wednesdays, <laughs> relatively speaking. Slightly faster. <laughs> uh, but we were looking at uh, coming up to the conversion of Saul. And so uh, we finished up this uh, chapter 8 that was dealing more with uh with Philip and the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch. And we looked at the fact of the uh, translation as it occurred where uh, Philip was taken from one place and appeared in another. So we have that at the end of chapter eight and uh, kind of closes out the story as it relates to Philip there. Uh, but we arrive in chapter nine and the focus is going to shift, right? So chapter seven, you see uh, Stephen and the persecution that occurs, chapter 8, you see the spreading of, of these believers uh, and then the uh, spreading of the gospel as well. And then in chapter 9, you get to the conversion of Saul and you're going to see the gospel really start to spread uh, once he comes on the scene. But in uh, verse 1, and let's just read the first immediate context from verse uh, 1 of chapter 9 to verse 10. It says, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the priests and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if any be found uh, of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And uh, the Lord said, uh, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he and he excuse me, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told to thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. And when his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was uh, three days without sight and neither did eat nor drink. And so you see this uh, amazing story here of the conversion of Saul. But I want to go back into chapter seven. Uh, but for, first, before we get there, let's bow in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Uh, Father, we're so grateful for this day and uh, grateful for uh, another opportunity to uh, look into these amazing stories that uh, occurred at the onset of the church. Uh, some of them miraculous and that we see uh, your power and glory shining through as is in this uh, conversion of Saul. And that's what it took uh, to get him to be of a change of mind. Others, we see just your regular working uh, through men to accomplish your will. And so we're grateful uh, that all of these things work together to establish the foundation, uh, which is built on Christ that we benefit from today. And so we pray that as we continue to uh, study through these things, that we would uh, have a great appreciation for the things that have been provided to us by grace and uh, that you use men uh, to be able to get us to this point. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. 
All right, and so I want to go back to chapter 7, and we kind of talked about it when we were here, but I want to really develop it out here as we look at it again, that there, this was a seminal moment in the church, right? Not just because it caused believers to spread out from Jerusalem and helped in the uh, what was told of the Lord that would happen there in chapter 1, right? That, and we keep hearkening back to this, that the gospel was going to go out from Jerusalem, into the uh, uttermost parts of the region that they were in and into Samaria and then out to the, the rest of the world. And so we see that. But we also see uh, something essential that happened here with Saul. And so that's why I want to go back to, to chapter 7. Uh, and pick it up at uh, verse 51 and we'll read from there. Well, what does he say? And so remembering back, it's not been that long ago. I'm sure you guys remember the story, but he's told them the history concerning Israel. Right. And why and how God was dealing with Israel in the way that he was. It wasn't that they were some uh, special nation. It wasn't that there was something great about them, just as with us in salvation. Right. God just selects individuals for his own purpose. And this is what he did with Israel. But how did Israel respond to the call of God? As a nation, they didn't respond very well, right? They continue to kick back against what God provided for them. So what does he say? What, what does he come to the, the summary of his whole sermon here? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, did they go to the Holy Spirit directly and say, huh, no, <laughs> I don't need what you're offering, Holy Spirit. No, but by God providing for them, they were resisting exactly what God was providing through the Holy Spirit. In verse 52, it says, which which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they have been this. Uh, they have slain them, which were showed before uh, or which show before the coming of the just one of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. So, so what is interesting here and really ironic is that they would say they were waiting on the Messiah, right? All this time over the course of all these years. And yet they killed every single one that pointed to the coming of this Messiah, right? And ultimately the Messiah himself. In verse 53, it says, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, what was their response? It's an emotional one, right? They were cut to the heart. Now, you can see people that tell people the truth a lot of times, right? And it affects them badly emotionally, right? No one wants to hear the truth, <laughs> Uh, and I, I might have said this when I came through, but what my father emphasized to me when we were younger, always, all the time, and it got on my nerves a lot of times even, is when you go and tell him somebody is saying this about me, he says, well, is it true? <laughs> is what they're saying true? Because if it's true, then maybe you should take it to heart. Sometimes the truth is hard to hear. Definitely hard for these Israelites. Uh, and so they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing out from the right hand of God. And so this provides comfort to Stephen in this moment where he's about to be slain. In verse 56, it says, and said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing out from the right hand of God. Then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. 
and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. So you see here, Saul is heavily involved in the persecution of the church there early. It only gets worse as you get to chapter eight. What does it say in verse one? And Saul was consenting unto his death. Speaking of Stephen. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and the Samaria of Samaria, except the apostles. And so you see the spread, right? They're going out. And what would it have took? You have people that are very steeped in their traditions and in what they've been doing before. They were not going to leave that area voluntarily, right? It took this persecution for them to spread out and scatter and to be able to, uh, as the word says there, that scatter, we talked about it on the way through here, has the idea of spreading seed, right? Spreading seed out. And that seed found fertile soil in other places. And we see the gospel being able to be uh, uh, taught in different places. And so it expands to Samaria. And as we get here to chapter nine, you're going to see Paul is going to be able to take this a lot farther, right? The foundation has been laid for him. It's almost like a, a, a quarterback handing the ball off to the running back, and he's going to take that and shoot through the hole and, and score a touchdown, as it were, to use a, a football analogy. But that's the environment that we're looking at as we get to chapter 9. So as we see in verse 1, where it says, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogue or to the <laughs> letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if any he found or be found in this way, uh, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So this is expansive authority that's been provided to him to what? Go and hunt down and track down Christians and to bind them and to bring them back to Jerusalem to face trials. Now, uh, picking it up at in our notes, <laughs> I'm going to get to them here. In verses uh, 1 through 18, we see the obedience of Saul to his calling. So in order to have this obedience, you have this foundation that was set that he is very disobedient and very obstinate against God. And yet, Paul thinks that he's doing things in the way that he's supposed to, right? That's his honest heart. Go with me over to Philippians chapter uh, three. And this is not in your notes, but just setting up what we're going to see in the uh, amazingness of it uh, with with Saul. Yes, <laughs> free. <laughs> I didn't want to steal your term too many times. <laughs> yeah, I might have to pay you royalties. <laughs> But in uh, verse one of chapter three, what is he saying here? So uh, Paul talks about earlier in the chapter, uh, what is he? he's in prison right now? He talks about his desire to to uh, be with the Lord, right, rather than to be on the earth. Uh, and certainly you would think that way if you're sitting in jail right now for for the gospel. Um, but he, he also talks about uh, the power through which he's able to do this in chapter two. And as he comes to chapter three, he's going to give a little bit of his background in the Jewish religion. Right. And and talk about how that is nothing to him anymore. Those are things that he's left in the past, quite literally. But it says in verse one, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write the same things to you to to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now he's not talking about chihuahuas and, and pit bulls and all. People might make those analogies and say there are different. I've heard preachers actually do this where they talk about the different kinds of people right? <laughs> and they categorize them as different kinds of dogs. Uh, this is not what he's talking about here. You can get carried away with these analogies. That's right. <laughs> yes, definitely barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> But he's talking about these people that are bent on getting you to act in a, a certain legalistic kind of way, right? Rather than that which has been provided to you. And he's going to set it up here that, hey, if anybody was the one that acted perfectly in this way according to the law, it was me, right? And those things are of no value to him in the present. So he's telling you, hey, these, these things are not valuable. Uh, verse 3. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What is he saying of, of verse three here? He's talking to Gentiles, right? And he's saying that we are the circumcision. Now, as far as I can recognize, most of the Gentile world did not do this act of circumcision in the past. So he's saying that this circumcision and what's done in circumcision supersedes what's done in the flesh, right? As God gave this promise to Abraham way back in Genesis, it had nothing to do with the physical act of what they were doing. It had to do with obedience to God. And so true circumcision is it supersedes what's going on physically. It has more to do with what's going on in the spirit world. And verse four, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh, that he might uh, or hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And so here he's setting up, hey, if anybody is going to uh, achieve in the flesh and put that up as an example of what you should do, it should be me. Right. I, I, I did it all. Verse five, circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel. That's a prescription according to the law of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. And really, that term for a Hebrew of the Hebrews is a Hebrew out from Hebrews, right? If these are a group of Hebrews that are here, I stood out from among the rest of them. As touching the law of Pharisee. Now, we talked about Pharisees coming through the book of Acts. This is the most strictest sect of Judaism, right? They're the ones that held more closely to the law, literally, whereas the Sadducees would spiritualize everything. They are the strict sect of Judaism. Verse six concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now he saw this as a good thing, right? He didn't see jailing, even having people put to death as a bad thing. As, as he was sitting there and Stephen was being stoned in front of him, he absolutely thought that they were doing the right thing. This guy is a heretic. He is he is stopping the spreading of, of good teaching concerning God. He needs to die. He thought that this was the right thing to do. Touching the righteousness, which is by law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Uh, yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung 
that I might win Christ. And so all of those things that he achieved, he counted that as waste, basically, right? Here he spent all of this time from birth all the way up to the middle of his life, pushing forward for all of these things according to law, the law. And what is he saying? It was all refuse. It was all trash, right? It was nothing. Uh, and so as we find him back here in verse 9, we see him, or chapter 9 of Acts, we see him at the beginning of his journey. And so uh, what are we looking at? In verses 1 and 2, we see his religious zeal, which was mentioned um, there in Philippians as well, uh, and his maniacal obsession with persecuting believers, right? He wanted to eradicate Christianity. And this is the kind of obsession, I hate to compare it this way, but it's the best comparison you could see, is Hitler, right? He was maniacal. He wanted to completely eradicate Israel and Jews from the face of the map. Um, and so this, this was his obsession, and Paul's is very, very similar. Uh, and so let's dive into it. Uh, he was breathing out. This word for breathing out uh, is a word that only occurs in this context. And it has the idea of to literally breathe in or inhale. Figuratively, it speaks of the fixation of one on a thing to the extent that it becomes the very thing that inspires life in the way air is breathed uh, that causes one to live. Right. You and I cannot walk around and live without breathing in and breathing out air. Right. Well, guess what? For Paul, before his conversion, the persecution of the church was the very air that he breathed. It drove him, right? This is his complete focus in life. We've talked about uh, us as believers having a goal fixated on uh, seeing Christ, right? And the end of our salvation and that causing us to stay straight in our lane. Well, guess what? His bullseye, <laughs> that target for him, that future state goal that he had was to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. And it was the very air that he breathed. Now, as we see Paul over the course of his life, and this is not a, a uh, character study on, on Paul, so we won't go as deep into it as we might. But if you looked over the course of his life, this obsession that he had with, with killing believers, the similar obsession that he had to being all that he was supposed to be as a Hebrew, is the same obsession that he came to have concerning Christ, right? And making sure that he accurately taught the word of God. And so uh, you see, whatever he attached himself to, he was going after it 100 uh, percent. And you see this here with him early. Um, top of page 103. I'll try to stick to my notes here. <laughs> um, but we see this uh, uh, verb is uh, uh, for uh, breathing out is a present active participle. And so in, in stating it this way, it's an act that Saul was historically doing in an ongoing fashion in the past. And so it kind of looks back to a historical view of what he was continually doing in past time. He was hunting down and trying to kill uh, or jail believers. And so this idea of breathing out, he was breathing out threatenings. Uh, this word for threatenings is a condition in which a statement has been made in the form of a promise of future action if certain conditions are not met. Right. We use this sometimes as parents. Well, we do as parents. If you don't do such and such, these are going to be the consequences. Right. 
The law uses this with people. If you do this, then this is the action that you can anticipate, right? Paul, if you do not stop or if you do not renounce this Jesus, guess what? You are coming with me and I'm taking you back to Jerusalem. And so this was what he was doing historically. I want to look at this word used in a couple different places over in Acts chapter four and verse 17. We see it's used as the action taken by the Jewish leadership to stop the apostles from teaching Jesus. Sound familiar? (laughs) We see it here in Acts chapter four. Now, this was a funny context because they they did tell Peter to stop teaching in his name. And guess what? They find him again (laughs) doing exactly what they told him not to do. Pick it up in verse 13. It says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled or they were uh, in awe and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus and beholding the man which was healed standing with them. They could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do uh, to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all, uh, 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 to all them that dwelleth in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them. That they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And so they're (laughs) telling them, if you do this, right, there's consequences that's going to come along with your action. Uh, We also see it used over in uh, Acts chapter uh, 4 and verse 29. So we'll read down just a little bit more. Uh, Pick it up in, and I think this is just the carrying out of, um, no, no, it's the... uh, conversation is had concerning these threats after the fact by the church but pick it up in verse 23 it says and being let go they went uh, to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them and when they heard that uh, they lifted up their voice to god with one accord and said lord thou art god which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of thy servant uh, david has said Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, Behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they they may speak thy word. And so here you see this environment that they were in. Uh, They looked to God to provide them with the boldness to continue on speaking uh, in this name, even in spite of the the threats that were being made against them. Um, Verse uh, or chapter six and verse nine of Ephesians, we see this action discouraged by Paul of masters toward their servants. And so I would say <laughs> threats can be idle and threats can be uh, very real, right? <laughs> there can be threats that people make that are almost promises, right? If you do this, then this is going to get carried out. Some people like to talk, right? <laughs> and they say, Oh, I'm going to do such and such if you do this. And 
you say you're not going to do anything. I'm not worried about you. But there are some people that make threats and you know they're willing to carry through on what they're going to do or what they said they might do. And I think this has the strength more of that. I don't see in the, the occurrences of it that it's kind of idle threats. Uh, but you see here with masters that they should not be threatening their servants, um, uh, those believers. Pick it up in verse five. It says, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not as men, uh, I, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. The good, uh, with good will, doing service as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that whatsoever good thing uh, any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatenings. So this idea of forbearing here is foregoing, right? You shouldn't have to say, if you don't do such and such, this is going to happen with a promise that it's going to happen to your servants that are believers, right? You should trust in God that they're doing their services unto the Lord, so they're going to do it as unto you. And if they're not, then God is going to deal with them, right? And so this is what he's looking at here. Um, um, knowing that your master in heaven neither is a uh, their respective persons uh, with him. And so uh, looking at God be, being the ultimate source there. And so as you go back to Acts chapter uh, 9 and verse 1, we see the action taken by Paul to discourage these believers from continuing to spread the gospel. And it's not um, some idle threat, right? This is not something he's saying to them. Yeah, you might do this and, and I might give you another chance. No, if I find you teaching in this name, immediately I can, can capture them and take them back to Jerusalem. Uh, and this is the action that he's, he's willing to take here or, or asking to take. Uh, and so not only threatenings was he breathing out, but also slaughter. Now, this word for slaughter is the intentional ending of life of another through violent means. And we see this used several places in Scripture. Uh, go with me over to Romans chapter 1 and verse 29. Now, here um, you see this historical view of man's activity apart from God. And so it starts, I would say, with the fall of man with Adam, and it gets worse and worse and worse with each passing generation, right? Until you get to the point where at, at the Tower of Babel, they're at the apex of independence from God, right? And this is not, not a good thing. Uh, pick it up in uh, da, 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 Romans chapter 1. Uh, pick it up at verse 18. He says there for equality, not the wrath, uh, but if it were the wrath, there would be no more wrath coming. But here, equality of the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, uh, so that they are without excuse. So anybody saying that there is no God, it, it always strikes me with, with scientists and the, the little things that they come up with to explain the things that they can't see. 
And they are just so unwilling to say that this is God. Right. But they're creating all of these different things that no one can see or, or, or put their hands on. Right. With science, you're supposed to be able to test things out. Right. But string theory, all of these different things that they have no conception of and can't prove out. Those things take the place of God. Right. And here you have this with them. Uh, and so they're not they, they have no excuse. Really, to me, scientists should be able to see it more than your average person to say, boy, I don't know if there's a God, but I know that, that uh, you, I can't explain it. There you have it. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now look back to the days of Noah. We know that God walked around physically on the earth. And I think in this person of the second person of the Godhead. And they had an opportunity to have a relationship with him and to see his activity. And what happened? They rejected him. Right. And they increasingly became more and more obstinate to what God desired. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like unto corruptible men, to birds and four-footed beasts and the creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Now, the worst thing you can have God do is to give you up, right? Is to turn his back on you and to say, you have at it, Right. There was a filter before then on their sin nature where it could only go so far. But as God has given them up, you see what you're seeing here today. Right. And nothing is new under the sun. Right. Men apart from God has twisted thoughts and it gets increasingly bad as every generation goes on. And that's just the way it is. Uh, Verse 25, he said, who changed the truth of God into Uh, Really, they're the lie. And this the lie, I think, traces back as you go back to John chapter eight and looking at the fact that man ultimately has been deceived by Satan to think that he can live apart from God. Right. To say that I can do this myself. And I think that's what that lie relates to and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of the error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, uh, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, uh, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without natural or without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing uh, the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in doing them. And so how do we get to where we are today? Uh, People looking at our culture and all of these things going on in our culture. Well, 
I think uh, superstition and religious superstition held people down to a certain point in America for a period of time, but uh, it, it, it's over, right? <laughs> people are back to where they were, and that old sin nature is, is turning again, and it, it just is what it is. Uh, but as you look at this, this idea of slaughter is, is, I believe, our word for murders that you see in, in verse 29. It's not just the killing of someone. It's the, the absolute uh, slaughter of someone, right? And that spans out from that old nasty sin nature. So we see over in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 21 that it is a product of the sin nature or work of the flesh. And so we can look there. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 21 And we can pick it up at verse 19, but the actual word will be found in verse 21. But it says there, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Uh, and so you see here that murders, right? Again, this slaughter, not just, uh, and really you could say senseless slaughter, right? There's a difference between uh, someone breaks into your house, right? And you're defending yourself and you have to take that person's life is not the same as you say, and our, our law even separates it this way, right? Uh, where, where a person on the spur of the moment, even when it's not in an act of defense, uh, kills someone and they didn't mean to kill that person, it's called manslaughter, right? It's not called murder one or, or murder two. But where you see people with pre-intent to kill someone and going out and setting about to do it, that's more what you're looking at here in, in a violent act behind it. Uh, we also see in <clears throat> uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 37 that this is a, pro- a byproduct of the former persecutions of the Old Testament saints. And so they were, unfortunately, a lot of them killed in this manner. So it goes through all of these uh, great acts of faith that were uh, done in the past and then um, tells some of the conditions that they were facing in the environment of, of these acts of faith. But pick it up in verse 33. He says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were uh, made strong, waxed valiant in fight, uh, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Uh, Women received their dead, raised to life, and others uh, were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourging, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in uh, deserts and in mountains in dens and in caves. And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. And so uh, here <laughs> you have these, these ones that were uh, facing all of this persecution, right? And they didn't get the payoff <laughs> in this life, right? But they continued on in faith uh, in spite of it. But back in verse 37, we see this attitude of, of uh, 
being murdered, and I'm looking at, I missed the, oh, yeah, it's there. They were sawn asunder, slain. This word for slain is the word that we're looking at there. Okay, and so as we work our way back to Acts chapter 9, and you think through what Paul is actually doing here, uh, and I hope those words have kind of uh, brought to life the actual context of the persecution that he was doing. Paul was not a nice guy, right? This was a very, uh, as we look at it in retrospect, an evil guy. He was doing terrible things against these people. Uh, but this idea here of breathing in or breathing out, threatenings and slaughter, and who was he doing it against? He was doing it against what was called at that time the disciples. And so these disciples uh, are, are looking at um, their actions as foretold of the Lord during, during his earthly ministry. And so as we think about uh, who, who these disciples are, uh, this was predicted that this would come, right? That there will, would still uh, be with the possibility of the kingdom coming, uh, as he told us back in uh, Luke chapter 21. So go, go back with me there real quick. And we want to hit on some of these things that were stated by the Lord during his earthly ministry. Uh, you might put a marker at, at Acts chapter 9 as we'll be back there before we close. Uh, but Acts, or excuse me, Luke chapter 21, and pick it up at um, verse 5. It says there, And uh, some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. He said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another uh, that uh, shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what uh, sign will there be uh, when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And the time shall draw nearer, <clears throat> uh, shall draweth near. Go ye not, therefore, after them. But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass. But the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in divers or various places, and famines and pestilence, and fear, uh, fearful sights, and great signs shall uh, there be in heaven. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and in prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my sake. And so he's telling this to them and foretelling what's going to happen. Now, as he's telling this here, there's still the view that the kingdom could occur. Right. He hasn't been crucified yet. So he's telling them that with uh, this in mind. But you see, all of these things foretold are coming to pass, right? Peter has already appeared before these guys. Now Paul is driving out persecution again uh, for the disciples as well. And so I just wanted to make note of that here. Uh, and we see also with reference to the disciples that uh, many remained that were following the Lord during his earthly ministry. And we won't go over there, but uh, just remember back to 1 Corinthians where it said all of these witnesses still remain to this present day, right? That had been with the Lord and, and followed after him in his earthly ministry. And so go back with me over to Acts and we'll close it out here. 
But Paul, or, or Saul, at this time, uh, was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And what did he do? He went unto the high priest. And what was his purpose? As he's going to them, he's wanting to go even further with this persecution, right? He's looking for letters that he could jail people and actually uh, 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 lock them up for being a Christian. And so in verse two, we see uh, his enhancement of his persecutive authority. And so uh, he appeals to the high priest. Now, this uh, word here for went unto is to enter into one's presence face to face. And so he had a face to face sit down with the high priest and outlined the uh, method for which he was wanting to uh, continue on in persecuting the church. Now, the high priest was uh, most likely at the time Caiaphas. Uh, Annas was the preceding high priest before him. And we could see that back in Acts chapter four and verse six. And the high priest is similar uh, to the president in this way that they continued to call a person the high priest even after they were gone. So it gets kind of confusing as you're you're looking at it in scripture uh, to see who the current high priest was. But what is he looking for? He's looking for letters of, of authorization. Uh, and these letters are to specify from the high priest to the synagogue that is at Damascus that if he finds any after this way. Now, this term we talked about before, uh, they weren't called Christians until later on down the line. Right. This uh, Christianity was seen as a sect, right, a heresy, an offshoot of uh, Judaism. And so they said this way. Right. And it wasn't a term that was meant to be good for Christians. It was meant to be derogatory, right? It's meant to uh, uh, highlight the fact that they are offshoots of, of Judaism and not the real thing. Uh, and we're going to come back to some of this uh, and hit on it in more uh, detail next week. Uh, but we see that he uh, was authorized to act against both men and women. And so men are viewed as as more important than the society back then. So it's very interesting that he didn't make this specific to men. Right. He says women as well and to act against them uh, and is an authorized for enforcement to extradite any of these believers back to Jerusalem. And so we'll, we'll come back to this next week and, and get into it in more detail and what what's specified there in verse two as to the extent of Paul's persecution against the church. Uh, but it sets up the foundation for, as you see this conversion, how much more miraculous it was, right? How it was needed for Paul to be persuaded in this way. Now, God, of course, can do anything. He could have just spoke to him in his mind and, and made Paul change his mind concerning these things. But it's very interesting, the method that God used so that Paul would always look back, right? And we see it all throughout the New Testament. He's constantly looking back and saying, boy, I'm not worthy. And this is something God used to to, I think, humble him. Right. And to say, boy, even though I'm giving you all of these things, don't forget what you used to be. Right. Because he keeps coming back to it over and over again. And you think human nature. Right. We want to build ourselves up. <laughs> Either we want to look at ourselves too highly or we want to look at ourselves too lowly. But we never look at ourselves just the way that we should be uh, with, apart from God. Uh, Paul is, is going to be helped along in this regard. Right? There's, there's something that can humble him at every turn uh, that he can look at. And we'll see that next week. Father, we're uh, so grateful uh, for this day and grateful for the opportunity that, uh, again, we have to look into your word. 
grateful for the opportunity that we have to see believers just for what they are and not to uh, put anyone up on a high pedestal. Uh, as you look at any of these apostles throughout the uh, scripture, they were human beings just like we are. They were subject to their sin nature just like we are. It just so happens that they lived in a time and were in a position where they were chosen and called by you for your purpose and you used them. And so we can think through it uh, in our current lives that we don't have to be Superman. We don't have to be uh, anything special. We just have to be ready uh, when you call us and when you uh, work through us to do those things that you desire to accomplish. And so we pray that that would open our eyes uh, to be walking in a way that we're, we're connected uh, to your son through our position in Christ so that we can accomplish those things that you desire from us. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.